Ladies and gentlemen, the bloodiest thing that ever happened in front of a camera. Hi, my name is Dan, and this is the first episode of the Cineforia Show. Uh, and the first episode is going to be my top ten favorite films of 1998. So I'm going to give a little bit of background into what led to this, kind of some of the rules I'm going by, the films that can and can't qualify for the list. So if you want to skip all that nonsense, you can go right to the first pick, my number ten. I got my timestamps below, uh, so you can skip right there. So, um... Some uh, a little bit of background that led into this list, and like I said, some of the roles we going by is that me and a buddy of mine we have another show together, and this was originally going to be for that show, um, but since I'm doing this kind of solo, I thought I'd rather just uh, you know make it its own uh, uh, thing, you know, uh, uh, put it on its own uh, show, and uh, you know, this gives me an opportunity to also talk about some other stuff. So it won't just the show won't just be you know lists and all that, but when it comes to um, uh, 1998, what happened was I uh, so I randomized a year from 1930 to uh, 2020, and my reasoning for that was, um, you know, I think 1930 is probably a good starting point. There's plenty of, of amazing films, you know, in the 20s, but I don't, you know, I'm, I don't know how tricky it would be to uh, put together uh, 10 films per year, uh, one feature films and two films that are readily available. Uh, and that, so I feel like 1930 is probably a good start, starting point for that. And also at the time I'm recording this, it's also 2021. So uh, there's still films this year that I haven't seen yet that I probably won't see until next year. Um, so I figured, you know, giving a year, uh, uh, the previous year, would be uh, um, would be easier. So, like for example, next year I'll do it from 1930 to 2021, and so on and so forth. So, um, so 1998, which is the year that came up, and at the end of this uh, list, we'll do uh, we'll randomize it again, and we'll see what the next uh, year is. So, uh, the rules that I go by is that so I give myself uh, three three and a half months ish to just watch as much as I can, and then put together that way. Um, you know, because I still have some like other stuff to watch. I can't solely devote to just 1998 films, or solely devote just to one year. So there's other stuff I'm watching. So um, I try to hit all the big ones, and uh, then from there try to get the ones that I think I'll like. Um, I, I also don't. That's so why I have like a long list of films, and I don't add films that one I have seen that I do, that I know I don't like, and two films that I don't think I'd like. So like for example, I didn't rewatch like the Psycho remake because I'm you know I'm not a fan of that, and like I didn't put like Patch Adams on the list because I knew I wasn't going to be a fan of that. So what's the point? You know I tried to only watch films that I think I'd, I'd like. Um, and, uh, but, you know, there's going to be films, like, there's plenty of films, there's a couple uh, films that I just didn't have an opportunity to see. Um, I think the three, the, the two big ones that I just couldn't find, uh, um, I, I, really, I really wanted to watch, but I just wasn't able to uh, to get to, uh, or to find without spending a lot of money on a DVD or a Blu-ray, is uh, Eternity in a Day and Black Cat, White Cat. Those were two that uh, I really wanted to watch. Eternity in a Day, especially, was one I re- I've been really wanting to see for a while, and I just, I tried, and I just, I had trouble trying to watch it online, so I wasn't able to get to it. Um, the only two big ones that I that I didn't that I didn't get to. Uh, well, the first one was Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. I haven't seen that film, and I uh, if I'd known about it a little bit earlier, uh, I, I would have made a priority to watch that, but I didn't get a chance to. And the second being, um, I started watching Dark City, which is uh, well, which one I know a lot of people like, and uh, halfway through, um, the where I was watching it was giving me issues, and I wasn't able to finish it. And I didn't go back and finish that because halfway through, it wasn't it wasn't a bad film because it wasn't really for me, and I knew that you know I got other films I got to watch, and uh, I don't this, there really wasn't enough there for me to go out and finish it. Um, also, films that qualify and don't qualify. So the rule here for me is that it has to have been made publicly available in 1998. And so, for example, if a film uh, came out 
in, uh, I don't know, Brazil in like June 1998, but then it played at a festival uh, the same year, then it counts. And let's say it wasn't released everywhere else until the next year. Um, to me, it counts as 1998 because it was released first. So festivals, I'm not counting. So there's films that played at a festival in 1998 that weren't seen publicly until uh, 1999. So uh, th- like, uh, so a couple films that I didn't watch or rewatch because they are listed as 98, but weren't publicly seen outside of a festival until 99 or later. Was Afterlife? That was a really that was one I really wanted to watch, but I, it, it wasn't it wouldn't qualify for me. Um, I Stand Alone by Gaspar Noy or No, I don't want to say his name. Um, I really wanted to watch that as well, but you know the same. And uh, Bullet Ballet by Shinya Sukamoto. Those three films are, are sometimes listed as 98, but uh, and I saw some people list like Afterlife as like their favorites of the year. Um, but for me, because it wasn't seen outside of a festival until afterwards, um, it w- doesn't count for me. So, and I'm not really going by a specific place it was publicly seen because some films get released at like you know some of the films on my list didn't get released in America theatrically that I was going through. So um, or the list I was going off of. So for example, like a film would be released in Japan and then it'd, you know play everywhere else like later and stuff. So as long as it was seen publicly outside of a festival in 1998. It counts. Um, so that that's my that's my main rule. So if there's a, there's a couple films that maybe you're like, oh, this is 1998, or, or you know, you didn't watch or anything like that, it's probably because of that. And at the end of the list, I'm gonna go through. I'll just rank all the ones that I saw because I think in total I watched uh, in about a three and a half month span for 1998. I think I watched uh, about um, 55 or uh, yeah, 56 films. So I, I got all the heavy hitters. I, I mixed in ones I think I'd like. So I think I got a good, good variety here. Um, and also the important thing as well that I really need to emphasize that this is my favorites of the year. This isn't the best films of the year. I don't really believe in like objective best. Like, you know, I'm all for just favoritism, but um, there's plenty of like probably objectively better made films that would be higher on the list. So like, for example, a movie like The Thin Red Line, which is a terrific film, Terrence Malick's film, I really like that film a lot. Um, if I'm talking about the best made films of the year, that would definitely be up there because, I mean, the the, the craft that Malick does in that film is is terrific, you know. Um, uh, just the, the characters, the, the 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 way the action scenes are shot, it's phenomenal. Uh, but it doesn't, it didn't make my list because I just, there's other films I like more of it. Like, I got two comedies on my list and uh, it, two, uh, one of which you'd probably be like, I don't, you know, that probably won't be on anybody's you know list, but this I'm going by favorites. So, um, you know, there's gonna be ones that I'm gonna rank like my number one and my number two are, are two that I really went back and forth on, and I'll explain why when I get to it. Um, in terms of favorites, um, so that's really that's really it. Uh, you know, like I said, this is all just for fun. I'm not I'm not trying to. I'm not an expert. I'm just, you know, I thought it was a fun challenge to do, see what I can watch in a three, in a three and a half month span and just go from there. And, um, you know, overall, I think 1998 is a pretty good year, at least from what I watched. Uh, I noticed a lot of pretty good films, um, you know, not like a, a handful of great films, but this wasn't a year that, like, I, I saw more films that I was, I thought was okay to pretty good. Um, I, I had a lot of, like, middle range kind of films, a lot of films I like. There really wasn't a whole lot this year that I really didn't like. There's only a couple films that I was like, I really didn't like that. Um, there's maybe like, there's only one big one that I know was loved, uh, that I wasn't really a fan of, maybe two films like that. And I can, I'm, I'm, I won't talk about it in too much depth because like I said, this is favorites. And, uh, when I do my ranking at the end, I'm not gonna, um, I'm not going to talk about every single one because I'll you know, be here all day. But uh, I was going to talk about the 10 films here. So uh, I guess with all that said, uh, if anything else I need to say, trying to think, uh, no, I think that's about it. So, all right, with that said, let's get into the list. These are my top 10 favorite films of 1998. All right, so number 10 on the list is Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I hate to say this, but this place is getting to me. I think I'm getting the fear. Nonsense. We came here to find the American dream. Now that we're right in the vortex, she want to quit? 
You must realize, man, we found the main nerve. That's what gives me the fear. Look. What? There's uh, two women fucking a polar bear. Don't tell me those things. Not now, man. This is my last drink. How much money can you lend me? Not much. Why? I have to go. Go? Yeah. Leave the country. Oh, no, come down. Chef, you'll be straight in a few hours. Yes, sir. Sit the fuck down. Oh, fuck Good. around, man. This is serious. One more hour in this town, I'll kill somebody. Okay. I'll lend you some money. Come with me. I want to leave fast. Okay. Let's pay this bill. Get up very slowly. I think it's going to be a long walk. So this film stars Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro based off the Hunter S. Thompson book. And uh, this film I think is pretty well known. It's basically, uh, and I'm not going to get into the plots of all these films because I think some of these are pretty, you know, known and talked about. So especially this film is a little tricky to talk about the plot because basically, I mean, on its surface, it's about uh, Hunter S. Thompson, well, Raul Duke, played by... Um, Johnny Depp and his lawyer, Dr. Gonzo, played by Benicio Del Toro, uh, in Las Vegas, kind of uh, in different, uh, pretty much in different, like, acid trip scenarios. I mean, a lot of the film is, uh, for anyone who's seen the film and knows the way it's directed, it's a lot of um, a lot of uncomfortable close-ups, a lot of um, Dutch angles. It's just uh, this really constant uh, moving... A machine, you know, there's not a whole lot of shots in the film that are uh, not moving or are pretty much straightforward on, you know, maybe a handful here and there. And the, the thing with this film that I think what a lot of films, I guess, try to replicate or try to do in terms of a character or characters that are uh, messed up or on drugs, or whatever, is making the audience feel like that. And I think this film does a really solid job at that, but at the same time, not losing its, its enjoyment of the film. I mean, I can imagine that some people probably wouldn't enjoy this film because um, it is it is constant like that there really is no um there's no outsider looking in at these characters who are all uh you know drugged up and and which i think works because i don't we don't really need that kind of character but having these two um you know uh joined up being in the film the most because there was a there was a stretch of the film where uh, Dr. Gonzo was out of it. Um, but on this, the second viewing, I think uh, two of the things that really came through is, I mean, obviously Johnny Depp's performance is phenomenal. A lot of his little quirks and mannerisms, which have been pretty, which have been parodied a bunch. I think everybody's tried to do their own version of, of this kind of character uh, of the Hunter S. Thompson at this point in his life and has never really been able to. But it's really a lot of his, uh, a lot of his facial movements, a lot of his body movements. Uh, there's a lot of times in the film where the characters, you, you just really get their mindset. You really feel what they're going through. You can just see the sweat on their face, the the nauseating feel of all the lights. I mean, uh, I think the, who's the, the cinematographer on this is Nicola, Nicola uh, uh, Pecorini, I believe, who uh, worked with uh, Gilliam, uh, you know, on a couple different films. But the way this film is shot, it, it's very, like I said, I think the word, the best word to use is nauseating, where it's almost like overload of all these lights, all the all the smoking, all the drugs, all the, you know, this is one of those films where it's uh, almost in a reality of its own, where it's like, it's like Vegas is like another planet, you know, there's some great sequences, like when they meet up with uh, uh, Penn Jillette, who's telling him all about, you know, the, the, the stuff he has going on there, and um, the, the humor of this film really goes through, really comes through well, because it's not just these characters who are, you know, messed up and, and are trying to interact with, quote-unquote, you know, more sane people because this this it feels like a whole other world you know um 
but just a lot of times where, where they're just a, a lot of what they say, a lot of what they do. There's a whole great sequence where uh, Raul, he, Raul Duke thinks he's he's in trouble. He's like, I got to get out of here and I, I have to get as far away from here as possible. And I won't say how that whole sequence ends, but the whole wrap up to that scene, he gets a telephone call. That's great. You know, the humor really comes through with this while being a, a very, um, it's not, a, it's, it's, a, it's a dark film, but it's not, dow- it's not dour. There's a lot of sequences that, um, that go on where it's just, you, you start to, uh, maybe not understand them more, but basically at a certain point you kind of let your guard down and really kind of get into the mindset of them. Uh, even when you get into some of the darker moments, like there's that whole sequence in the bathtub uh, where they have that the uh, uh, White Rabbit song playing, which another thing too, the soundtrack of the film is really well. It doesn't feel just like needle drops, like they have like Jefferson Starship and stuff, and a lot of sequences in the film where... Um, the like like I said that that white rabbit sequence is the intent the uh the tension and the intensity of that really does help with the song kind of building up and uh, I won't say how that scene ends but uh it's it's really it's great you know it's like uh, I can see why people maybe wouldn't like the film because like I said it, it does really kind of keep that same uh craziness and pace throughout it really doesn't let up and uh, I remember the first time that I watched this film I definitely liked it a lot don't get me wrong but I was uh, and I you know I still thought it was solid don't get me wrong but I was definitely like okay this maybe was a one and done I don't know if I need to go back and rewatch it again but the rewatching it for this show I think I really appreciated it more on not just the performances but on the directing on the cinematography uh you know it's got this really kind of foggy haze to it in some sequences and um you know when you let your guard down and just kind of go on this crazy trip through the desert uh and all these other characters that they along the way this film is also really has a lot of uh, a lot of other cameos in the film as well a lot of actors uh, you know like Tobey Maguire very early on uh, Mark Harmon shows up at one point like I said you had Penn Jillette in one sequence and uh, there's just so many great sequences of the film that I've been parodied so much and I think that people have this idea of, of Hunter S. Thompson because of this film um, which I think a good follow-up film I guess I, I don't I don't know a whole lot about Hunter S. Thompson um, so I don't know if this film was take place before or after but the film a film like Giant Up did later in 2011 uh, the Rum Diary, which I think is really good as well. I actually think this film's kind of underrated. I know a lot of people aren't too crazy about it, but um, it's him playing that Hunter S. Thompson, but at a different point in his life. Again, I don't know before or after. I really don't know a lot about Hunter S. Thompson, and I've heard that Gonzo documentary is very good. I haven't seen it yet, but this is a really fun film. I know, I'm, I mean, the, the, above all else, this is a very fun film, and a very funny film as well. It just, you're going along for this crazy ride, and I love films that put you in headspaces of these characters. Johnny Depp's performance is great, but also Benicio Del Toro is equally great. I mean, he is the closest that we have to a quote-unquote straight man, but then at a certain point, because he, he's, there's just the whole, I love this, that when they first actually get to the hotel, and Benicio Del Toro has to actually keep things together, and he's starting to lose it too, and this is just a really solid film, you know, I think when Terry Gilliam hits like this, he hits really hard, because I'm not crazy about all of his films, you know, he's definitely, sometimes we hit or miss for me, but I think when he really nails it like this, he, he just does, he just pheno- does phenomenal work, uh, yeah, this is a really terrific film, and I'm, it, that's rewatch especially really made me appreciate it a lot more, the directing and the acting for sure, so my number 10 pick is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So moving from the deserts of Nevada all the way to the other side of the world in Ireland, we have The General. They're evicting us, all of us, got six months to get out. No, can't do that, Francis. We won't leave Hollyfield. No way do we go. They're offering us a flat in Kevin Street. Kevin Street? Sure, that's a deliberate insult to a criminal. Them flats is right opposite the cop shop. They're nice flats, though. Nice? What's nice? Neighbours, that'll cover for you. That's nice. Look at Francis, we're the dregs. We're the lowest of the low. That's why we stick together. That's why we belong in Hollyfield. It's us against them. Yeah, four kids in one little room. Yeah, we're happy. Aren't our kids happy? Aren't we happy there as kids? Aren't we? 
No, I won't go. We'll drag them through the courts. As your lawyer, Martin, I have to advise you against it. It'll be expensive, and you'll lose in the end. I don't care what it costs. I pay you, don't I? I know you charge me twice what you ask civilians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you robbed me without breaking into my house. <laughs> You're breaking through the fucking letterbox. So also kind of another uh, true story in a way, like Fear and Loathing. Um, but I believe I read that some of this film, it kind of uh, uh, pulls it back a little bit to my knowledge. I don't actually know a whole lot about the real story about this with Martin Cahill, who was an Irish mobster who had pulled off a couple of robberies. And then what, the great thing about the film is that it's really just a, a, a power play back and forth between um, uh, Martin Cahill, played by Brendan Gleeson, and the police force. So they're really like, they, it's, they, they can't get, to him but they know that he did so they're constantly on him you also have John Voight in the film as well who is really terrific he plays an inspector in the film and he's great as well but uh, the main focus of the film and I think who is just terrific in the film is Brendan Gleeson I'm already a big fan of Brendan Gleeson and uh, not having seen this film before I just think he does such a great job here he's got like this charisma to his performance that you don't like him but at the same time he does have these kind of quirks and funny moments that um, you could see why somebody could like him I mean I've heard some comparisons to the film Chopper with Eric Bana and I think Chopper's a uh, you know more comedic, but that's another film as well where you have this real-life guy, this real-life criminal, and in that film, uh, you know, maybe you don't ever like him, but he is still very funny in the film, even when he does terrible things. Like, one of my favorite sequences in that film is when he messes up a guy pretty bad, and he, you know, but then he takes him to the hospital. He's like, I took you to the hospital. I don't know. You know, it's, it's just great, you know? And there's some moments like that in here. Like, there's a, a pretty rough um, torture scene involving uh, some nails, and what happens afterward, he's like, uh, well, I don't want to give it all away, but basically his reaction after is sort of like trying to go back and bit like all right let's wrap him up you know that, that sort of thing i can't really uh, i don't want to give it all away but yeah this is a really solid crime film and uh what i really like is that the second half of this film when it gets more into the because uh the film opens up with something that you know uh maybe, I don't know if I would have opened up, opened up the film the same way, because you're kind of waiting for it to come, and I know this is a true story and all, but, you know, somebody like me who doesn't know the true story, I watch, I'm like, okay, um, but there's just some great moments in the film, like, you know, because Martin is such a stubborn character, there's a whole great part where they need him to move his trailer off the land that they're building something on, and he just will not do it, But and the cops are just getting so mad at him, and, like, this is just their reaction to that and what they do, it's really great, I think this is a, uh, it's not quite a, I don't ever, it's not, definitely not a comedy, I, it's definitely not that, it, it, you know, it, it is, gets pretty dark, and I've heard that the, uh, the real Martin Kale was a lot, was a more rough person they portray in the film but there's are those there are there are those comedic sequences that uh the, just the stubbornness and and just the pure hatred that the cops and he and him have for each other. Uh, like a, a scene that I love in the film is when he get he's getting I forgot if it was his wife or his, somebody who was pregnant to the hospital and the police are really tailgating him and uh, so he tricks it in a way where he's able to get them to hit his car like he slams on the brakes and they hit his car in public accident and uh, he you know goes out in front of this crowd he's like you all see, you all saw it you all saw it you know uh, they hit my car I got a pregnant woman and he he gets them to escort him to the hospital like like Martin you're your son of a bitch, that sort of thing. It's just moments like that that really make it great because of, you know, a big part of it is Brendan Gleeson's performance. I think Brendan Gleeson is, uh, which is one of my favorite actors. He's so charismatic, even when he's playing a son of a bitch like this. Like him and Ray Fiennes have uh, one of my, one of the funniest uh, dialogue exchanges in the movie in Bruges. Harry, let's face it. I'm, I'm not being funny. I mean, no disrespect. But you're a cunt. You're a cunt now. You've always been a cunt. And the only thing that's going to change is you're going to become an even bigger cunt. 
Maybe have some more cunt kids. Leave my kids fucking out of here. What have they done? You fucking retract that bit about my cunt fucking kids. I retract that bit about your cunt fucking kids. Insulting my fucking kids? That's going overboard, mate. I retracted it, didn't I? And I think that really helps adding to just what a great uh, performance or, and a great, great, you know, a great performance and what a great actor he is. I think sometimes Brendan Gleeson is sometimes put to the, uh, uh, as made as a side character, but as a leading, as a leading man, he's phenomenal. Like the film, The Guard, I think is really terrific. And he's really funny in that film as well. Uh, playing a character who's a real son of a bitch in that film as well, but is also very funny. Um, the directing of the film as well, I think is really solid. This is directed by the great John Borman, who's made so many great films, of course, you know, like Point Blank and Deliverance. And, you know, even films of his that I'm not crazy about, like, like Exorcist, yeah, <laughs> like Exorcist 2. I think the directing of that is really cool here as well, and um, really cool there as well. I'm sorry, and here is great. I mean, this is a, this is a shot in black and white. I don't I don't know who shot the film, but some of the action sequences, or well, some of the chase sequences, I think are really great. There's a, some great tracking shots in an alley, and it really sh- shows you this whole mini world inside of. Uh, I believe it takes place in Dublin that uh, feels very uh, feels very rough. Like you know, this isn't a very glamorous part of Ireland, but uh, they really show you. You know, they do a really great job. Showing kind of just the scuzzy, uh, 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 more kind of dirty parts of it, you know. But but you know, showing like how I'm sure it actually was, you know. Uh, I can't, like I said, I can't say for the legitimacy of the real story of the real case. I really don't know. I don't know what how it's different. I'm judging the silly on the film on its own. But this is one that uh, if you're a fan of crime films, if you're a fan of, because I say it's a mob film, but it's really not that. You know, it's more he's more of a just a, a robber than a mobster. But. Um, this is just a really solid crime film that I don't really hear a lot of people talking about, uh, and especially for a, a great leading performance by Brendan Gleeson, I think this is one that definitely uh, should be seen by more if anyone hasn't heard of it. So, uh, The General, that's my number nine pick. So, going back to America, and number eight, we have something a little bit different. Um, this is one that people might go, uh, I don't know about this one, but I gotta say it because this movie, I think it's absolutely hilarious. Uh, R.I.P. Norm MacDonald, that's right, number eight, I gotta give it to Dirty Work. So you mean to tell me that that sweet girl's grandmother runs a whorehouse out of the building we're about to destroy? Yeah, I feel awful doing this to Kathy. Hey, uh, Mitch, you're really starting to like this Kathy, aren't you? No. Mitch, I know you, man. When you say no like that, you really mean yes. What are you talking about? Watch, I'll show you. Mitch, uh, did you ever rob a bank? No. Did you ever climb Mount Everest? No. Did you ever say that you can see why women find Sean Connery sexy? No. Okay, so I like Kathy a little bit. Man, I hate the fact that we have to destroy her grandmother's building. But we have to. Yep. Yeah, this is the one that you guys might look at me kind of strange. Like I said, I'm going for favorites and rewatching this film. Man, I don't know if I'm just getting sentimental because I love Norm MacDonald, but man, this movie cracked me up. And the funny thing is, the first time I saw it, I really wasn't crazy about it. I was like, yeah, there's a couple funny parts here and there. But I think just rewatching this, maybe it is because he passed away recently, at least at the time of recording this, or I don't know, just a lot of the jokes really landed a lot more for me. Uh, yeah, like I said, it is kind of funny to go from, and you know, we're going to have more kind of traditional films on this list, but it's kind of funny. I look at my top 10 and, and this one kind of, you know, stands out a little bit. But as, as the, as maybe not the wild card, but definitely the, um, the one that I guess I can make the list of my own. But this is this premise of this film is totally ridiculous. You have Norm MacDonald playing this guy, Mitch, and basically he ends up starting a... He's he's always been really good at revenge. That's, that's been his thing. So he, he opens up a revenge for higher business. And from there, we get a lot of different kind of uh, scenarios. The plot in this is super light. He needs to get money for his... Um, 
uh, for for <laughs> for Jack Warden's. I think it was a surgery, which I also love. This is you know between this and you have like Ernest Borgnine and, and basketball. I just I love these uh, older actors just doing these really dumb comedies. I mean the whole scene the whole scene at basketball. You have Ernest Borgnine. Uh, I don't, well I'm not gonna get into that. But anyways, uh, yeah, the, <laughs> this film. I mean I, I can't. I can. I'm sure on an objective level, I'm sure you could probably say it's bad. Whatever. This film, it cracked me up this time. Artie Lang's really funny as well. They have a great back and forth. Of course, Chris Farley is in there, uh, you know, and he, he, this is one of his last films, but he, he's great in the film as well. He has a good running joke. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, comedians pop up in this. Like, there's a whole great scene with uh, uh, David Koechner where, uh, um, in, in a scene that could have easily come out of, like, uh, used cars, you know, with uh, with Kurt Russell, uh, basically Norm McDonald rigs it in a way where he needs to get a commercial on TV, so uh, I won't give away the whole sequence, but it basically puts uh, some stuff in, you know, David Koechner is is uh, running this car dealership and they're shooting a commercial for TV and uh, a live commercial, you know, go figure it's a live commercial. God forbid if anything bad goes, anything goes wrong, but they do something to the cars that I won't give away. But uh, yeah, this is a film where it's just a lot of funny scenarios in this. I think Norm MacDonald is basically just playing himself. I mean, it's, it's Norm MacDonald uh, said that he's, he doesn't never, he didn't really want to be an actor because he really is just playing himself. Even in a film like the people versus Larry Flint, when he shows up kind of briefly, you really kind of see it more as him uh, as Norm Macdonald in that role because even actually in that film Milos Foreman wanted to give him a bigger part but Norm Macdonald kind of uh, he turned it down but he turned down a bigger part because he's not an actor and for this film I think it's totally fine I never saw that film that he did with Dave Chappelle that uh, came out after I think actually speaking of Larry Flynn, uh, I think uh, Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander wrote that to my knowledge I haven't seen that film uh, I've heard some not so great things about it but here I think he really shines as well um, because you know as it's going along there's this different um, different scenes this is a whole great scene where uh, you know he, he puts some raw fish into somebody's house and how that goes wrong. And I think it's just really the charisma of Norma Dodd that really makes the, that really alleviates, not alleviates, really um, um, elevates a lot of the material because I don't know how much of the film is improvised. I don't know how many jokes were actually planned in advance because, I mean, he is, he is, um, uh, listed as a writer as well with Frank uh, Sebastiano and Fred Wolf. So I don't know how much that is just the writing itself or it is just Norm. But there's just, you know, a lot of great visual gags too. There's a whole great scene with Artie Lake sticking his ass out the window. And there's a great scene where they take hallucinogenic brownies as part of a test because they need to get money. And there's some great cameos in that. Like I won't say the, the <laughs> Norm McDonald, I see somebody in the front seat of his car. And I tell you, just, there's what that visual shot of that one actor, I won't say, just reading a newspaper and smiling, I think is the funniest thing. Uh, can I? I mean, this this comedies are really tricky to recommend because, like I said, the first time I saw this film, I really wasn't crazy about it. I was kind of like, eh, it's all right. And then, you know, I thought about it more and more. And I think I had watched it because Norm Macdonald had passed. But watching this again, I mean, there's just so much of this film. So many lines. I think with the way the film is edited as well, I think it's something that a lot of comedies you kind of take for granted for is the editing. A lot of jokes don't linger too long. Um, and the film is short, too. It's about it's under an hour and a half. It's about an hour 20 or so. And I think a lot of comedies now, especially, uh, we were going through that weird period, a lot of those Judd Apatow movies where they were like two, two and a half hours. And I'm like, man, I, I mean, we sure, there's exceptions, of course. You know, I, I, it's a mad, 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 mad world is a classic film, but that, you know, there's exceptions, but I don't want to see a two and a half hour comedy. Uh, so here it gets in and out and none of the jokes work. I mean, I'll give, you know, there's definitely a handful that I just kind of like, eh, I don't really know about that, but because there are so many in here, I think more work than don't. And the ones that do work uh, uh, make me laugh really hard. So this is definitely the wild card pick, I would say. But um, I, at the end of the day, man, this movie just cracks me up. Uh, of, of all the movies, on the list here. This is one I'd probably be the quickest to go back and watch again and again uh, for me for obvious reasons because some I think are just better films overall but this is the one of uh, my top 10 I'm going to go back to watch again and again and show people and uh, I just I really just think this is a great film and R.I.P. Norm MacDonald and, uh, you know it was one of a kind and just one of the funniest people to ever ever live. Uh, so that's my number 8 
is Dirty Work. So, going back to something a little more serious, we have a directorial debut from Mr. Darren Aronofsky. We have Pi. What do you do? <clears throat> um, I work with computers. Math. Ma math? What kind of math? N number theory. Research, what? mostly. No way, I work with numbers myself. I mean, not traditional. I work with the Torah. <laughs> Amazing! <laughs> You know, Hebrew's all math. It's all numbers. You know that? Yeah, look. The ancient Jews used Hebrew as their numerical system. Eh? Each letter's a number. Like the Hebrew A, Aleph, it's one. B, Bet, it's two. You understand? But look at this. The numbers are interrelated. Like, take the Hebrew word for father. Av, Aleph, Bet. One, two, equals three. All right? Hebrew word for mother, aim, aleph, mem, one, forty, equals forty-one. Sum of three and forty-one, forty-four. All right? Now, Hebrew word for child, all right? Mother, father, child, yelled. That's ten, thirty, and four. Forty-four. Torah is just a long string of numbers. Some say that it's a code sent to us from God. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's just kid stuff. Check this out, okay? The word for the Garden of Eden, Kadem. Numerical translation, 144. Now, the value of tree of knowledge, all right, in the garden, right? Eitz Achayim, 233. 144, 233. Now, you can those take those numbers. numbers. So, the, you know, like the Fibonacci sequence? Fibonacci. Fibonacci is um, an Italian mathematician in the 13th century. If you divide 144 into 233, the result approaches um, theta. Theta? Theta. The Greek symbol for golden ratio, golden spiral. Wow. I never saw that before. And talk about a hell of a debut. Uh, another film that I forgot to mention that I didn't watch was Following by Christopher Nolan, which is uh, kind of funny because Christopher Nolan's one of my favorite directors, and uh, I really wanted to see that film, but I just didn't get a chance to. Uh, but another one of my favorite directors, uh, Darren Aronofsky, this is a debut film, and I think he just totally knocked it out of the park on this one. Um, like Fear and Loathing, this is a film that the first time I saw it, I definitely liked it a lot. I thought it was really solid, but... Um, on a rewatch this time, this movie really kind of just floored me. Uh, what a, just a hell of a, just, just a, a swing and a home run for a, for a debut, man. This is just a really, really tight uh, psychological drama, pretty much. Um, the plot in this film is a little bit loose as well. I know I said I wasn't going to explain all, all the plots, but, you know, it's pretty uh, uh, loose on this and more about kind of the characters. But we have this character, Maximilian, played by Sean Goulet, who um, is, a, is a really, is a, is a pretty much a genius. He's, he's a mathematician. You can ask him any uh, mathematic formula, and he knows it off the top of his head like that. And basically, he he so he has these people in his life, lives who you know he sees his uh, he has like a mentor uh, uh, played by what's his name from uh, Breaking Bad. I'm forgetting his name. Is of course he's, he's a great actor. All I know is oh he's Breaking Bad. Um, but he builds a supercomputer, and then from there he starts running into these kind of people who because uh, he believes that uh, every, you know everything is connected through numbers. So there's a formula that you can find that will 
unlock like basically the ultimate code and that's not really a great plot synopsis i know but throughout the film maximilian has these horrible headaches uh, these migraines actually i believe it's like there's actually a name for it it's called like these like suicide migraines or something which is like just an unbelievable pain and sort of the mental stress that he goes under he's living in new york and everything is there's constantly noise and um also shot in black and white as well it's very uh everything i get this vibe everything's really like kind of dirty around him it's very like uh it's like his, everything in his head is kind of like portrayed on screen because everything like black and white numbers everywhere um the people that he runs into he starts running into um this one main uh, hasidic jew i believe is the name i forgot don't really actually i apologize but um uh, lenny meyer i'm sorry ben shankman um and he starts running into him and how he's connected to um possibly because he because he because uh, lenny starts talking about how um uh, a lot of what he sees as well in the uh um uh what's the name for it the um uh how, like, a lot of stuff in Hebrew is connected that way and how he kind of introduces uh, Maximilian to uh, a lot of the patterns that way. And basically trying to find this code that may or may not even exist. It's basically the, uh, a mental breakdown of this character who also happens just to be obsessed with numbers. And like Fear and Loathing, I guess there's a lot of comparisons you can make to that film. This is definitely a smaller scale film. And there's a lot of just what I love is that a lot of rogue fil uh, filming. So there's a lot of times they just go on the street and they just film it like that. Uh, there's sequences on like a, uh, like a train station that have, uh, took a while to film because they're just going out there and filming it. Um, and the black and white in this film, uh, I think is, is it, I, I, I think that was such a, even I don't think it was a choice. I think, I think that was just how he had to shoot it. I don't actually know the specifics of it, but I think black and white adds to such a uh, nightmarish kind of quality about the film because that's the thing the film feels like a nightmare without but but still makes sense in a way because there's a lot of in the second half mostly in the third act is where it gets really uh, a, very visual um, there's a lot of really cool interesting kind of just strange stuff you get like like a whole thing with like a brain and a sink which kind of ties into uh, the end of the film about like just all, all the knowledge that he's gaining and, and all the problems that he's running into uh, the, the film it, it just feels like a natural like even at the start you feel uneasy you feel like like, like queasy in a way and then as it goes on, you're getting more into his headspace and, and you're wondering, is there a conspiracy against him? There's these people who are running into him uh, uh, who would need to talk to him that he doesn't want to talk to them. And he ends up kind of, uh, you know, getting into deep with them and the problems that he gets into along the way. Um, this is definitely a film that's more about kind of just experiencing with the character because we're following Maximum the entire way. So as his gradual mental breakdown is happening, um, we are feeling it as well. We really just we really do feel the world around him. Um, of what's real, what isn't, is there a conspiracy against him, uh, uh, with the numbers connecting, is there a pattern to all this, you know, and, um, they talk about the actual, you know, pattern of, of pi, you know, 3.14, just this endless string of numbers, is there a pattern in that, you know, in trying to solve that as well, um, I think that, you know, this is a film that I definitely, uh, Aaron Oscar is a smarter person than I, so there's definitely a lot here that, um, that I just totally went over my head uh, that, uh, you know, probably somebody could probably break this down and, and make, you know, like a, like a pattern, make more sense of it. But just purely as just as, uh, you know, as a surface level, just experience of a film, this is a film I would just love to see in a theater. This is a, this is one that uh, even though it is, you know, it's low budget, but it does a lot with its budget. And it, it actually almost works better in a way because I can't imagine this film. I, I like how uh, with this film, whether intentional or not, how this area of New York, I think it's in Chinatown, it feels like, there, it, to me, it feels like there's nothing really outside of this this world it's really just like because we're following maximilian everything is everything that we follow through him is in this small area of new york and and nothing matters outside of it all the people that he knows are inside it uh like a pattern in a way um it, which if that makes sense you know great if not well i try to explain the best i can but i was the acting as well i think is really great obviously sean galette's in the film uh, is really solid in the film but ben shankman who plays lenny i think he's really great in the film. he's kind of funny when he first comes in um you know he's kind of like messing around a little bit at, at like a diner or something and i really like how he becomes more and more into the story and 
and uh, the actor I've seen before from Bring Bad, Mark McGollis, who plays Saul, who plays his, um, who plays his mentor, um, and their relationship, how, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the monologues they have back, or some of the dialogue they have back and forth, I think is really solid as well. Um, all the acting, those I, I just thought was great. It's got this really, it's got one of these soundtracks where, it's this like this. I, I don't know about music theory or anything like that, but like the like the bass in this film, it feels very much like like something like this impending kind of doom constantly through it. It's not like it's not like a hard hitting soundtrack. It's just this constant these constant undertones that you just feel and you watch it and you just feel uneasy. And a lot of the uh, the, the the sound production of the film, there's like parts where, like a telephone just constantly going off and it, it becomes like annoying and you feel you get into the headspace of Maximilian of just this constant noise, is this constant like you know. Uh, pattern, if you will, and then where it goes to at the end, I just thought it was such a strong ending and such a strong uh, finality of the film that um, it's just great, man. Like I said, I think Darren Aronofsky is he's one of these filmmakers who I just feel like everything he does, uh, even whether or not I like it or not, you know, some films I obviously feel strongly more than others, but he's always just doing these these really wild and interesting dark things, you know, whether it's Requiem for a Dream or Black Swan or Mother, whether or not you like the films, I think he's always trying to do something uh, about a, a breakdown of a character, you know, um, and I haven't seen all. The films, I think there's like two or three I haven't seen, but I think he's really great at, at just following a, a deterioration of a character and 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 giving you that kind of nightmare. Uh, uh, headspace, you know, like, like I, th- I really, you know, I'm a big fan of Mother because that film, especially in the second act, or I'm sorry, in the second half, mostly in the third act, is when you really start to feel the, uh, 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 the this kind of nightmarish quality where nothing's making sense. But like this film, when things don't make sense, you still kind of go along with it, you know. Um, like I said, I held a debut film. Uh, and this is on, this is one of Aronofsky's best films that he's made, and I just think that on a second viewing, like Fear and Loathing, I just thought this was absolutely phenomenal, and um, I think if I watch it again, I'm gonna like it even more. Um, yeah, really terrific film. So on something a little bit lighter, uh, going to the only other, I guess, full-on comedy on this list, we're going to go to France uh, for a movie called The Dinner Game. The Tour Eiffel, entièrement faite avec des allumettes, 346422 exactement. C'est vous qui avez fait ça C'est une de mes plus belles pièces. J'en tiens. Comment est-il Un champion du monde. J'en sais, traque, moi. Laquelle C'est pas vrai. Tu l'as invité ici Je voulais l'étudier un peu avant de l'emmener dîner. Tu vas voir, il paraît qu'il est fabuleux. Allez, bonne soirée. Tâchez d'être brillant. Hein. Le temps ne fait rien à l'affaire quand on est con. Un dîner de con. Vous ne connaissez peut-être pas le principe. Chaque invité amène un con. Oui, oui, il est là. Oui. Il a une belle tête de vainqueur. Alright, so when it comes to comedies in 1998, I mean, when it, like, Dirty Work is the one I'm going to rewatch again and again, but I think The Dinner Game is one that I, I mean, I do like more overall, honestly, and this is one that I don't really hear a lot of people talking about, but I was just surprised at how strong and how tight the script was. I mean, and this is a pretty short film as well, like I was saying, with a movie like Dirty Work. It's like an hour 20-ish for a comedy, maybe an hour and a half tops. I mean, that's really kind of the sweet spot, and this film especially, I think, uses that runtime really well because the script in this film, and this film was written by uh, uh, Francis Weber, I believe that's how you say his name, I apologize if I messed it up, is really strong. Um, because basically we have this film, we have these two guys, uh, we have this main guy, uh, Pierre, played by Terry Lemine, I believe that's how you say his name. I'm really bad with foreign names, by the way, in case you didn't know. But he and his, um, I think it's uh, his company or his friends or something like that, uh, they have like an annual kind of, uh, uh, or uh, maybe not annual. I've got, they have this dinner every now and then, and it's basically if they have to find the biggest idiot they can to bring to the dinner, and whoever you know brings the biggest idiot wins, or whatever. Kind of like the movie um, Dogfight with. Um, 
uh, uh, River Phoenix. Uh, something similar like that. They have to bring the ugliest girl. A dogfight is actually a really terrific film as well. Any excuse I can bring to uh, bring up dogfight is just it's just a great film. Keep an eye out for that as well. Um, but basically, from there, uh, he finds this guy in a train, Francois, played by Jacques Villeret. And um, Francois is pretty eccentric. You know, he has this whole thing where he uh, makes these like giant. He makes these uh, uh, recreations of like famous landmarks with matches and stuff. And he's like knows the exact amount of matches and, and all this stuff. And from there, he's like, okay, this guy is the idiot. So I'm gonna bring him to dinner and what i like about this film is that it's without you know not a spoiler but you never get to the dinner the, the point of the film is that i mean it's a pretty crappy thing to do you know he's bringing this guy who i mean the thing about francois is that he's not even like a he's not even an idiot he's a bit eccentric sure he's like one of these guys who maybe he's like a you know a little quirky but he's not like a he's not a bad guy at all he's like uh he's just an eccentric guy who has this kind of uh kind of has his hobby and what i love about the film is that you think it's, you think I don't know. You think it's gonna be, you think it's gonna be one thing, and then it turns out to be really more so. Kind of just like a, a, a great sequence, a great sequence uh, after another um, of just things getting worse and worse, and characters coming in and leaving, trying to solve, trying to solve a problem, and another problem comes of it. I mean, the film, like I said before, the the, the script in this in this film is like razor razor sharp. I think the dialogue in this film is so tight and so funny, like constantly, just just the problems that these kids get into, where it's just simple things like just just miscommunication or uh, a character has to come in when they need to actually go and they're like oh no you don't need to send him on you gotta come you gotta come back in and and how Pierre is just constantly trying to get himself out of the situation all the while making sure that, <coughs> that no one knows um, that, that Francois doesn't know that you know he is being brought to this dinner because the, the we don't get to the dinner and that's fine be, that, that's great because what Pierre is doing already is bad I mean he's, he's, he's calling this guy an idiot he doesn't even know because he's kind of eccentric and then from there how that be kind of uh, that comes into uh, conflict at a certain point and have the two, uh, you know, kind of help each other out. You know, uh, 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 Francois, who is still a good guy, he tries to get him out of the situation, but then things just get worse and worse. And, and all these characters come in. I mean, this is one that I know it was remade in 2009, I think, 2009 or 10 with uh, uh, Steve Carell and Paul Rudd. That movie didn't for so much. I, I never saw that movie. It didn't really interest me, but I've never seen the trailer and it kind of looked like Steve Carell was, they, they looked like they made him just like way too, way too far in that movie and they, they had, you know, scenes of the dinner, and it's like, oh, everybody's crazy and eccentric, but, I, like, that film, I don't really have any interest in, I'm not, it's not really my kind of film, but, uh, I mean, I'm, maybe it's good, I don't know, but this film on its own, I think it's just so sharp, and, and, I mean, it almost entirely takes place in this, uh, in the apartment. I mean, there's some shots outside and stuff of, like, leading up to it, and some of the stuff, uh, uh before and after, but, um, just these characters who come in to play back and forth, and, and you're just watching them, and, and just, it's getting worse and worse, and I think especially what makes, makes, makes this film really solid is, uh, like the very end of the film where it's like they have this great like build up build up and then like the final line in this film is like perfect and then it cuts to the credits and it's like man at that hour 20 runtime you just totally nailed it man this film is is hilarious for sure um i don't know how like you know this is like like um like some other films i don't know how easily available this is you know i had to rent this online so it is available for streaming but i'm like man this should be readily available in america i don't i don't or at least it has to like should have a blu-ray you know like i'd love to see like, see like criterion or something put this out because i think this film is so strongly strongly written and so funny uh and it's just constantly moving to it's never dull when it's over it's like wow that was just a great funny comedy so like i said dirty work is probably the comedy in 98 that i'm gonna rewatch more but this is the one that that i just really enjoyed more overall i thought this was so strong and yeah the dinner game just what a what a great solid movie man um 
So uh, that, that was my number six. And number five is uh, more dramatic, you know, going from a lighter comedy to something like this. It is a film I never even heard of before, but uh, yeah, like I said, just kind of floored me. And this is uh, now my number five pick. I'm going with Central Station. In Central Station, there are a million stories. Stories of hopes and sorrows, joys and dreams. But today, an act of destiny will bring two strangers together in Central Station. Winner Best Picture at the Berlin Film Festival. The story of an unmarried woman and a little boy in search of the father he has never known. Together, they will share a journey. that will bring them together, tear them apart, and forge a remarkable friendship you will never forget. So this is a Brazilian film, uh, one that uh, so Sony Picture Classics had put out, but uh, I never really heard about it, to be honest. And um, for a film that I never heard of, that I just kind of went into blind, I didn't even know what it was about. Uh, wow, this is this is just an incredible, incredible film. I actually, this is one of these films that the more I've thought about it, the more I've actually liked it more. I wanted to like bump up my rating a little bit. So we follow this main girl, uh, Isadora, played by Fernanda Montenegro, who works as a, uh, she's like, uh, like a, I don't know if this is actually a real thing or not, but they have like people who, who will compose letters for you at like, uh, like stations and stuff. So people will come, people will go to her, they want to write a letter who maybe are illiterate or can't write, and she will do it for them. And, but she's kind of, I mean, she's like a pretty, she's not like a great chick. I mean, she, she, some of them she doesn't even mail out. She brings a lot of them home and just keeps and, and just like kind of laughs at people. And her and her friend, um, her friend, I believe is, uh, gosh, I don't remember her name, um, but they're both, I mean, her friend's a little more kind of like, uh, you know, but, uh, I mean, she's, Isidore's not a great person. So early on, we have this, this kid, uh, this kid, uh, uh, I think his name is Jose, and um, his, without giving anything away, he gets into a really uh, bad accident where he's left on, a, he, he's involved in a really bad accident where he's left on his own. He's sleeping at the central station. They tell him he has to go. So Isadora, um, at first, you know, and I don't want to give away plot for, you know, beef for beat away because the, the way the story evolves, it, it is, you, you, you want to, you want to see the journey on your own, but at first she does something pretty bad to the kid. I mean, she she does something where it's like, man, that's just that's just terrible. Even her friend is like, man, that's that's really bad to do. But she's like, all right, you know what? I gotta I gotta write the wrong. So it ends up being her and this kid on this kind of this road trip where um, she to to find Jose's father. But the thing is that so but. Uh, early on in the film, when uh, Jose and his mom end up coming to her because he wants to write a letter to his father, but you know through some circumstances, you know she find uh, 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 um, uh, Isadora finds out or realizes that his father is just a, a bad guy. He ended up abandoning them. He's you know he's. He's just a bad dude overall. So it's like she's bringing him on this journey, but she's still having this kind of uh, this complex back and forth about like I'm bringing him to his bad like to a bad person. And but but it's not like the way that I say that where it goes to in especially in the second half. Well, I actually especially more from the third act, probably the last half hour. Or so I really just 
I thought was just so touching. Um, this film is never sentimental or cliche. I mean, we have moments where it's like characters are, you know, caring for one another or being, you know, jerks or whatever, but it's not in a cliche way. And I think the the, 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 the camaraderie between Isadora and Jose back and forth is so strong where you see that, that gradual kind of build up to him and her annoyance where she's like, I'm in this situation that I really shouldn't have been in, but, but she still has that, that enough of a conscience where she's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta take care of this kid. I gotta look out for him. And where it goes to in the, the twists that it takes the reveals that we get um, are just so powerful and are so um, I just didn't I really didn't expect at all especially where the film goes to at the very end uh, the the very end of this film the last like 20 minutes I thought was just, it really moved me man I thought it was so touching and um, I you know I ended up shedding some tears at the end of this film uh, I just love the the two performances by, by the two leads you have um, uh, Fernando Montenegro and uh, uh, God, how do I say this name uh, Vincius de Oliveira sure why not uh, like I said I'm really bad at the names but the journey they go on, uh, and, and you know, it's almost two hours, but there's not a moment of fat in this. It's really the characters they meet along the way, um, thinking they have a lead on where his father is, but then some things don't work out, and they have to go from there. And then, like I said, the, the introduction of a, yeah, the introduction of a couple other characters uh, in the end is so um, is so great and touching. And then at the very end of the film, I was just like, wow, that's. The, like, it was just a beautiful, beautiful ending and, and just really made me emotional. Uh, yeah, I just, for, of all the films that I watched in 1998, for, this was the one that I never heard of that I just watched at random and the fact that uh, it was it's so high up on this list, I mean, it's my, it's my fifth favorite film of the year. I, I just love this film. I think it's so, it's not cliche, it's not sentimental, it's not uh, uh, hokey or it doesn't like force the emotions out of you between the bond of these two, you know, of an adult and a kid, but it just works so well and really just, uh, really sticks with you. Uh, you know, like I said, the ending of this film is just really powerful, and I love this film. I just think, if anything, this might even be higher, but I think where it is now, I'm, I'm pretty okay with. But, um, yeah, Central Station, man, just a really great blind watch, and I love this film. I think that, uh, I, I think if I'm correct, uh, I might be wrong with this, but I thought it was um, the choice for... Um, uh, I think it got nominated for Best Foreign Film that year at the at the Academy. I don't know anything about the Oscars, um, but I think it was something like that, where it was like a front runner or something like that. I really have no idea. Maybe it won. I really couldn't tell you. I don't know a damn thing about the Oscars, but uh, either way, I think people know about this, but uh, if you're like me and had heard of it, um, it is on YouTube, so I don't know. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not the easiest to get in, in, in the States. I believe the DVD's out of print. Uh, I mean, you can find it, but it's not. I mean, it's just Look, if, if a movie's not that that accessible to get, I'm, I don't really feel too bad about watching some of the stuff online. But uh, yeah, Central Station, really terrific film, and uh, yeah, just just really really powerful film. Uh, so, uh, one of my favorite kinds of films are gambling films, are card films. You're playing cards, people gambling. I'm not a gambler. I don't know how to play blackjack or poker or any of that. I don't know anything about that. Um, and I think probably the big film of 98 when it comes to gambling films is Rounders. And I think Rounders is solid as well. Matt Damon, Edward Norton, really good film. But for my pick, the, my number four favorite film of 1998, a film that, you know, I think is really terrific. And, you know, I love gambling films with Clive Owen is Croupier. Thank you, sir. Enjoy your game. 50 quid for a Diet Coke. Waitresses were the true winners in the casino. The only members of staff allowed to accept tips. Thank you, Jack. Enjoy yourself, Mr. Chai. On a good night, they could get between two and three hundred quid. Good evening, Mr. Chai. Evening. Mr. Chai always likes to sit at that table. Normally with Bella. Does he win? He's a good customer. A good customer is a consistent loser. But is that what he meant? Where'd you live, Jack? Over the river. You got transport? No. I'm going over the river. I'll give you a lift if you like. 
Directed by Mike Hodges, like I said, Croupier. Um, it's funny; it's actually listed as uh, 1999 some places, but it does count as 98, and I'm glad it does because I probably would have seen this film uh, uh, without um, it being for the list. Which is funny because, like I said, I love gambling films, I love card films, so I may have would have come across this at some point. But I'm really glad that I, I watched this for this because I loved this movie. This is just one of my favorite gambling films. Um, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the I don't know. Maybe it's the high stakes uh, uh, sort of playing. I don't know. Like I said, I'm not a gambler. I don't. I've, I've been to a casino like twice, you know, and I <laughs> I would not do good. But I love watching films about them. And uh, man, I, I really just this really this film made me really appreciate just Clive Owen as a lead. I always thought he was a good lead. I, I've seen him in mostly a lot of like American action films, but in this, I'm like, man, this guy should be playing like more of these kind of roles because he's he's one of these these characters. Or the, his character in the film, uh, the character name is uh, a Jack. He's the smartest guy in the room without having to show it. Where basically he's writing a book. He's writing a book about like soccer or something, and he ends up uh, getting hired as a croupier at a casino, which is like the, uh, the a dealer. Like I guess like the English name for it, because you know, um, uh, or yeah, the name for it, like in, in England or whatever. But basically, he realizes that slowly his uh, his croupier lifestyle starts to. Uh, uh, creep into the book. He's starting to write more about the book about that and some of the inner dealings in the casino, um, some of the people that come in. Uh, and then the, the third act kind of takes more of a, um, not a heist kind of uh, route, but it definitely goes into a, a direction where he's kind of put into a situation where it's like, you know, just don't, you know, just you're, you're part of this now. Because you start to see that he's had sort of like a, like a lifestyle behind him. And he, he's, he's like one of these guys who is the smartest guy in the room and doesn't ever have to, you know, doesn't have to show off about it. He's very quiet. He's very, um, he's one of these characters who like, uh, you know, doesn't really have to showboat a lot. If, if there's a great part where like a character is like out of out of uh, out of place, where a character is like, hey, you know, uh, he's like, oh, you know, Clive Owen is telling them like, no, you can't, uh, you can't do that, and. Uh, uh, the, and the guy give, is giving him giving him crap about it, and they they interact later, and it basically shows you that yeah, Clive Owen's really not a guy you want to mess with a whole lot. Uh, but and what I like about the film is that the morality of uh, his character is not like he's not a great guy. He's, he, he I mean he screws over another character in a pretty bad way, and there's not that resolution where it's like oh, but then he worked it all out. He's like no, he's a pretty bad guy, really. Not like a not a bad guy, but he's definitely looking out for himself. But he makes for such an interesting, cool character where he doesn't have to try. And also, you know, Clive Owen is also just a good looking guy as is. So anybody, you know, when you see women kind of going to him you understand that where he you know he kind of is just trying to do his own thing but getting sucked back in, into this world um also you know films like this that have this that have narration for a reason i think is great where you you know he's explaining all the rules that, that are going on here the different types of people that come in and stuff and we getting it getting it through his perspective which is great you know we see him uh, it's just funny because he's back home at you know at home kind of this lonely kind of like sad life where you know he's still seeing women and all that but he's trying to read his book he's trying to write his book i'm sorry but then outside is just totally different person um the other characters that he meets up with, uh, he meets up with this girl for a while, who he meets at the casino, who ends up, you know, he ends up uh, going a different route with, and uh, this film was directed by uh, Mike Hodges, who uh, did, uh, which is funny, because you look at his filmography, and it, it, I don't think he ever did a, he mostly did, like, uh, I don't know, he did, like, Flash Gordon and stuff, he did a lot of films, and um, yeah, Get Carter, the, uh, yeah, the Michael Caine film, so it's just, I like his, his range of films, you know, this is, I don't know if he ever did another film like this, but uh, this film I just thought, I thought was absolutely terrific, um, yeah, just really, like, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm biased, because I do like gambling films as is, so maybe I'm hyping up a little bit more, but I thought the performance in this was just so great, um, all the, all the gambling 
gambling talk. It's one of these films where they're talking a lot about cards and gambling and and and, and playing, but it never alienates you. Where some films might, where you'd watch a film and they're talking, they're getting so in depth with the terminology about poker and cards, that it kind of leaves you uh, leaves you uh, uh, kind of on the outside. But here, even though I don't totally get it all, I, I still just love the talk of it. Uh, I, I think a big part of that is is the way that Clive Owen plays the character. I really just think that he is a big reason why I love the film so much, and I think the dialogue is really sharp here as well. I don't know who wrote the film, uh, uh, so Paul Meyersberg uh, wrote the film apparently, and. Uh, uh, okay, he also wrote stuff like Man of Feather Earth and, and, and films like that. So, uh, yeah, I know, I just, a really, really solid film. This one is actually pretty readily available. I, I watch this off Netflix, and um, I think it's on Amazon Prime as well. But, yeah, if you're like me and you love gambling films, you love uh, uh, films like this take place in casinos, I think this is one that you absolutely need to see. I think Rounders is, is really solid, don't get me wrong. It actually isn't uh, that far down the list, but I just, for my money, this is the one that I bet on, and I just, it's also shorter, too, than Rounders. It's only about, it's only about an hour and 20 or so, so you, like, you can get through this pretty quickly. But, uh, yeah, great film, a really highly recommended this is one that i don't hear enough people talking about but i think you know really just a solid solid great film with a great lead performance so into the top three all right so top three what will they be so number three is a film by one of my favorite filmmakers period by peter weir this is the truman show i'm sorry to keep you oh that's okay how can i help i would like to book a flight to fiji when would you like to leave today. I'm sorry, I don't have anything for at least a month. A month? It's the busy season. <sighs> you want to book the flight? Doesn't matter. I'll make other arrangements. Okay. Last call for Chicago! All aboard! Thank you. Windy City, here we come. Hi. <laughs> Yeah, this is, of course, a rewatch as well, and, uh, yeah, like, going with the pattern of today, this is the film that, uh, on a rewatch, I really, really love this film. Uh, like I said, directed by Peter Weir, is one of my favorite filmmakers, he's directed one of my all-time favorite films, Picking the Hanger Rock, he also directed The Last Wave, uh, 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 Dead Poet Society, Fearless, with, uh, Jeff Bridges, and this was uh, one of his later films that he did, because he only did one... Uh, uh, two feature films after this, Master Commander on the way back, and I haven't seen those yet. But, uh, man, this film is so just phenomenal. Um, watching this a little bit older, it, I was able to appreciate it a lot more. It's definitely more of a drama. It's really not a comedy. I hear it kind of grouped in as, as that because it's Jim Carrey, but it's really not a comedy. There's comedic moments, but it's definitely more of a drama, but surprisingly, it's not It's not like a super dour film. It's not like some some really dark film when it easily could have been, but I think everybody kind of knows the plot of this one. We have uh, this guy, Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey, who... 
his entire life has been this then been the basis for this reality TV show where everybody around him uh, he's living in this fake um, town where he can't leave uh, everybody around him is an actor and he starts to realize things start happening where like like a light like a light from like a set falls in the street early on and he basically starts to realize uh, slowly realize what's going on here um, and I think the, the big part of the film as well is that obviously you know I think Jim Carrey's uh, terrific in the film which is funny because I'm not really a big Jim Carrey guy he's not never really been for me uh, I like him more more of a dramatic actor more playing it straight but here I think he's really terrific as well he's not playing it up and you really are on his uh, obviously on his side but a lot of his reactions he's not like he's not being really goofy and stuff he's very being very real but when he has to be kind of more eccentric and kind of played up for the camera um uh he's great but i think the, the side the side cast in this film are great as well. Um, Ed Harris, of course, is, is terrific as well. He comes into the second half of the film as kind of the overseer of the whole thing and really has this, like, almost like an, uh, an obsession with Truman. There's that really great shot that I think people have seen everywhere. It, it kind of reminds me of, like, Persona in a way, which I'm, I bet I would... I would bet money on it was probably a direct nod to where you have this giant shot of um, of uh, Truman on the TV and, and and Ed Harris is putting his hand on the TV. Like I said, like probably from for, from Persona. But um, uh, another actor who I think is really great in the film and maybe doesn't get talked about enough is Natasha uh, McElhone, I believe is how you say her name, who was also in this. It was also in Ronan from this year, uh, and she plays somebody who was in Truman's life at one point and got taken out when she tried to you know interfere with the production of the show and all that. And um, the thing that I like about this film so much is that I think the pacing of this film is so strong. Because there's a point in the film where you're like, okay, where where is this going to go to? Where what else can I do? And at that point is when you kick into the third act, and it's like, oh, okay, I really didn't appreciate it until now just how strong the the pacing of this film was. Where you get to the the undeniable third act when things start to change, when you get into that shift, and I I thought it was just it was perfectly timing. It was like that exact moment where I thought, I don't know, okay, what's going to happen next? It's time to repeat ourselves, but then it goes into it. Because also, speaking of the third act, his friend Marlon, played by Noah Emmerich, uh, is great as well uh, as, as Truman's kind of close friend. And you start to see uh, uh, kind of uh, their, you know, their his maybe not his frustration, but he's definitely trying to, uh, he's like, I don't know what to do, you know, because I've been with this guy my whole life. And the the breakdown that uh, the breakdown of that, um, the set design as well is great. Uh, we have the whole town, which is very much like a, like a 1950s kind of look, uh, you, you know, where... Uh, everything is very um, like, like just solid color. Everything's beautiful and bright and perfect. And um, from there, we get a lot of like the fun characters on the side and stuff. Like two of the guys who want to come in for a loan and then they never do. And um, but, but, you know some other stuff that was great in the film is when we have Truman who's starting to uh, trying to do what he can to either leave town or get away from the people. Like there's a great scene sequence where he tries to like, like go on the bus and what happens there? Like they're panicking like oh he's getting on the bus trying to leave or when he tries to go on the boat or when he's trying to uh, you know I'm, I'm gonna be spontaneous. Let's get out of here. Oh, I can't leave the town where he starts to kind of realize that yeah I think this is like I said before I'm not a big Jim Carrey guy but I think he was perfect for the lead here and he plays it he plays it so well and he's directed so well you know and I think a big part of that is Peter Weir is so great with actors that he can get these really just really um three-dimensional performances out of their character where he is being funny and all that but he's not playing it up and he's being real about it as you would probably react in a way and it's not like I don't know this is one where you could have easily went, like I said could have went really dark with it and this does have moments that are probably you know maybe lightened a bit I don't know I imagine that things probably changed a, a bit you know to, to try to make this a little more accessible but as it is I this is a pretty pretty solid film from beginning to end, there's really not a lot that I can even say negative about. It. I think the pacing, the script, the acting is all great in the film, and then the ending, especially, really, uh, the 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 final sequence between two characters is so just powerful. I, there's, there's one shot in particular, which I think everybody probably knows of, but I won't I won't say what it is. It's just sort of uh, a character ru- ru- running their hand along something, and I think that one just just wide wide shot of of them with this background, I. 
love this the ending of this film as well the, the ending is perfect in this film uh and especially the very end where they okay yeah here we go um it's perfect I, I yeah i love this film this is one that just got so much better on a rewatch and um just i think this is this is probably the one that on this list people have probably seen the most of so i don't need to say, say well this is maybe my next choice but um i've probably seen the most of but if in case you haven't this is just it gets this is one of these films that gets better with time love this film the Truman show number three so number two and number one, here's where things get kind of tricky because I went back and forth between these two a lot. And even now I'm still kind of like, I don't know. So let me put it this way. Number two and number one are not that far apart. Almost two number ones because I really like there's one that I think is the best film of 1998. And there's one that I think is probably my favorite film of 1998. So I really don't know. Um, so number one, and number two, I think are very easily interchangeable. I love both these films for two different reasons, and these are the two films in 98 that I gave a 5 out of 5. So, it's very tricky, um, so just take it with a grain of salt, but they're very, very close to one another, practically on the same. But number two, man, I rewatched this film just actually uh, two nights ago. Wow. Um, this undeniably is, to me, the best film of 1998, without a question. This is one of the best films I've ever seen. Maybe you already know what it is, you probably already do, you're probably already saying it, but of course, I gotta go to the masterpiece, one of the greatest war films ever, of course, Saving Private Ryan. Continue, Jackson. Well, what I mean by that, sir, is you used to put me and this here sniper rifle anywhere, up to and including one mile of Adolf Hitler, with a clear line of sight, sir. Pack your bags, fellas, war's over. Amen. Oh, that's brilliant, Bumpkin. Hey, so Captain, what about you? I mean, you don't gripe at all? I don't gripe to you, Ryvin. I'm a captain. He's a chain of command. Gripes go up, not down. Always up. You gripe to me. I gripe to my superior officer. So on, so on, so on. I don't gripe to you. I don't gripe in front of you. You should know that as a ranger. I'm sorry, sir, but uh, let's say you weren't a captain, or maybe I was a major. What would you say then? Well, in that case, I say this is an excellent mission, sir, with an extremely valuable objective, sir. Worthy of my best efforts, sir. Moreover, I feel heartfelt sorrow for the mother of Private James Ryan. I'm willing to lay down my life and the lives of my men, especially you, Ryden, to ease her suffering. Man, like I said, this probably is... If you ask me on a different day, this probably could be my number one favorite film of 1998 because this film, it, it floored me. It, I mean, to say... I know this is this is one of the most famous war films. This is one of the most famous films, but rewatching it again, man, the this is this is really one of the best films I've ever seen like ever this this film absolutely blew me away uh i think probably everybody's seen this film but in case you don't we basically have this uh, this this battalion led by uh uh cat miller played by um or Captain Miller released the battalion played by Tom Hanks, and basically they're sent to go retrieve this one Private Ryan because uh, this private who had lost three of his brothers and um, the head uh, of of the the unit is like, okay, we don't want to you know to spare his to spare his mom any more um, uh, 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 heartbreak. We're gonna send home his one kid, but you gotta go find him. Which is like they sh- they show you the the just the scope of where they're at. It's like it's like a needle and a they say a needle and a needle stack. You know, I mean it, the act is insane and it has insane as it sounds so there's there's eight of them and they're going out there and they're fully aware of the situation where they're like this is they're, they're gonna risk all of our lives for this, for this one random guy and uh where it goes to is just it's just incredible obviously tom hanks is 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 this is maybe my favorite performance of his career honestly i i don't think i can i don't think i've seen him in a better performance i mean i love comedic tom hanks gonna be wrong i probably like comedic tom hanks more than dramatic tom hanks but him in this film his character Cat Miller is so layered and is so 
you really feel for him, especially when he when he starts revealing more about his past uh, and in kind of the situation that they're all in. These are just these are just guys, these are just random guys in the situation who have to kind of who are, are trying not to lose their humanity. Um, in a scene that I'm going to talk about, which is probably my favorite scene in the film, but. Um, Tom Sizemore is great, Edward Burns, um, and then some other bigger actors. Uh, Jeremy Davis kind of comes into it, where as somebody who is uh, who is, can speak French and German, but he's never really been in combat. So there's there's sometimes where he wants to he wants to uh, 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 come up to the plate, but you, he's he has this like kind of cowardly part to him. And it's like at one on one hand, you're like you know this guy is sitting back while these other people are getting injured and all that, but you also can't blame him because he's never been in a situation like this where any of us probably do the same thing. And then some of the bigger actors like Adam Goldberg, Giovanni Ribisi, Vin Diesel, Paul Giamatti's a small role. Um, and just, you know, even if you don't remember all the characters' names, they're all distinct in their own way. And when they start to go, it's a very it's a very ugly film. Like, I mean, I know this is a very, I know this is, this is like a Hollywood film, but it's, it's a very ugly look at war. And uh, there's a lot of times I've noticed watching it this time where there's, there's no soundtrack playing during a lot of the war sequences. It's very ugly and harsh. And when characters die, it's very just, it's very, you know, they don't die quickly. They don't give a, uh, besides one time, they don't give, which is, you know, which is maybe my only minor gripe where a kicker has to say something and then die. But, um, there's like one sequence in the middle, which is my favorite sequence in, in the film, um, because of everything that happens where basically they're going up on this hill that that they know is a bad idea, but it, it, in this situation, it's better for them to go this way than go all the way around. Uh, where Cap Miller is saying, you know, I'm I'm in charge. We, we're gonna we're gonna go up here. If you don't like it, then get out of here. Um, and what happens in that 20 minute span is we we learn so much about the characters. We learn and a situation that happens. And um, a character dies in that scene, and it's it's horrific, and it's emotional, and it started to make me emotional watching it um, in a very non-Hollywood way because we learned something about that character. Uh, 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 There's a scene earlier; they're in like an abandoned church, and they're all saying kind of some stuff about back home. And that character has a whole speech about something, and uh, it really just hit hard. And then when that character goes, and they're referencing that speech earlier, or referencing what they were saying earlier, it, like, oh my god, I, I it like. It, it's, it, it hits you, man. It, it really is powerful. Um, and the way the film is shot as well, this is uh, this is shot by um, Spielberg's longtime DP, uh, uh, I'm going to butcher this name as well, uh, Janusz uh, Kaminski. And it's, it's, it's all gray, but it's not, it, it feels very, it doesn't feel like just, like, I don't know, it's hard to explain. It, 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 it's got a specific look to it where it feels dark and, and, and dingy, but it feels honest too. It, it's a very unglamorizing look at kind of this uh, this this situation. There there is no big epic speech where it's like I don't know. I, I've like like I think this isn't like some like glamorous like w- this war film where it's like the Americans come in and they save the day. It's very it's very ugly and very harsh. At the end of the day, you know, was the challenge worth the risk? And probably not, honestly. I mean, obviously there's the, the whole opening sequence that, uh, you know, on the beach in Normandy and it's just a, it's a horrific sequence. I mean, it goes on for 20 minutes and it's, it's just like, it's very, un- it's very brutal. It's very unglamorized. There is no big, you know, rainbow at the end of the, at, you know, at the end of the storm. It's very much like, okay, we survived this. Are we going to survive the next thing? You don't know. Um, and that leads into the rest of the film. As, and, and I think Spielberg is like Scorsese, where he's one of these guys, they just have the ability to make a film that's nearly three hours and make it fly by. I mean, when this was in the third act, when we get to the, the noticeable third act, I was like, wow, I've been sitting here for almost two and a half hours. This is insane. And where it goes to... Um, you really feel for the characters. You feel their frustrations and you're in there, you feel for them where they're like, why the hell are we going all the, why are we risking our lives? There's that one great line where it's like, uh, where, where Captain Miller says like, we you know I, I'm going to butcher a line, but it's just something like, you know, I hope, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, us risking our lives will, will help, you know, uh, 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 private Ryan's mother, you know, with some grief or whatever. It's something like that. Basically like, why are we risking for this one random guy? And, and you get it and you feel for them and, and some of the animosity that comes with that and some of the agitation and, um, 
like I was saying with the script, you know, when, when we started learning more about, about uh, Captain Miller's past, it comes to the perfect time and kind of, and that whole point of what he's saying in terms of war and in terms of not losing your humanity is, it's, it's amazing, honestly. Um, my only real line of gripes this film, if any, is just sort of like maybe some stuff at the end of the, the epilogue, um, which maybe could have been shortened a bit, but I, I guess I get it, but that's nitpicky stuff. I mean, this is really like, I don't, like, this is one of these films I just don't, like, if you don't like the film, that's fine. I just don't get it. You know, I don't get what... what I, I just, I don't understand, like, you know, what, how, how you couldn't like this film. Like, my number one film, I get why you maybe wouldn't be able to like this, more of a favorite thing, but this one, like, I just don't get it. Like, I, this is, this is an undeniable masterpiece, honestly. It's not cliche, and I think the fact that Spielberg made three of the greatest films of all time in the span of ten years, this, uh, Schindler's List especially, in Jurassic Park, it's like, the dude's a master. He can, he has a permanent pass. If he made one of these films, it'd be good enough, but, like, especially Schindler's List, but, like, yeah, he made three masterpieces in, like, a ten-year span, and I'm like, unless you're Coppola Scorsese, I don't really see a lot of directors doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, it goes less thing. I think everybody's probably seen this film, especially, like, war films. Uh, it's a very ugly, honest, emotional, brutal, but powerful film that when it was over I was just kind of floored I was like wow this is a very unglamorized but still like a, a big production of, of what, it, what, what it would be like you know and um uh, yeah, it's just it's a uh, it's undeniable masterpiece. I, there's nothing less it's, it's anything less than calling it a masterpiece. I think it's just wrong. I just I really do think it is. This is this is just one of the greatest films of all time. It probably is my number one favorite film in 1998. But I I tell you, I went back and forth between these two for so long, and um, I'm gonna go with my number one. My number one is more a personal thing. Why I think my number one film is just so incredible because of, of the script. But Private Ryan is. In my opinion, undeniably the best film in 1998. There's nothing in 1998 that can even. And it, the thing with this one was that, you know, I don't care about the Oscars or anything like that. Like when the thing people talk about, oh, Shakespeare and Love won Best Picture over this. I don't, I don't care because the way I look at it, I'm not throwing shade at that film. You know, I watched that film. It wasn't wasn't for me. I'll be honest. But I look at it as Stephen Fry Ryan is still watched almost 25 years later. It's still considered a classic. Shakespeare and Love is remembered as the film that won over Stephen Fry Ryan. I mean. Not throwing shit at that film, you really can't compare them, but let's face it, who cares who won what? We're still watching this film. Probably less people are watching Shakespeare in Love. Just saying. Anyways, number one. Okay, here it is. No More Delaying, my number one favorite film of 1998. Maybe a controversial pick. Actually, probably a controversial pick from a controversial filmmaker. A film that just one of my favorite films, period. Buffalo 66. What are you doing? What are you doing? What? Don't touch me. All right, don't touch me. What do you me. mean, don't touch don't me? You're touch supposed to be me. husband and wife. I'm just trying to make We're the couple good. that doesn't touch one another. We like each other. We like each other a lot. And we span time together. We just don't touch each other. All right? Now let's span time. Let's use a different color in the bag. Do blue, all right? This is the blue period where we... Get up, get up. Don't touch me again, all right? Just look like you like me and let's span time. All right? You got that? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, I don't want to waste any more money. This is my last two dollars okay. I'm putting in. Yes or no? Yes. All right, you do it for me. If you don't want to do it, don't no, do it. No, no, I'll do it. Okay, let's look like we like each other and span time and do not touch me. Okay? Do not touch me. Okay. Do not kiss me. Now, I know it's probably controversial putting this over Saving Private Ryan because Saving Private Ryan is a masterpiece, an undeniable masterpiece, but Buffalo 66, man, I, I tell you, this film, man... The script and the directing and the style of this film, 
It's something else. Buffalo 66, basically we have uh, written and directed and starring Vincent Gallo. He's just released from prison, plays this guy Billy Brown, and um, he basically gets in a scenario where he has to go home to his parents, so he ends up kidnapping this girl from like a, like a dance studio, uh, played by Christina Ritchie, plays this girl Layla, and then from there, we kind of follow, uh, he wants revenge on somebody who kind of put him there, uh, a deal that basically went bad. But it's really not about that, it's basically about this main character, Billy, but played by Vincent Gallo, who is, I mean, he's a, he's a bad dude. I mean, he's he's just a pathetic kind of, like, loser, really. But the weird thing about this character is that you never sympathize with him, but Vincent Gallo has such this, this charisma to him that, like, it makes you really still interested in his character. This is kind of a tricky film to talk about and why I love the film so much, as much, because I at no point am I, like, on this character's side. But Vincent Gallo, what he does is that he makes us, like, just a bad dude, like, just a, just a bad, you know, person. But you still kind of, at times, like, he still had this, has this weird quirk where you maybe don't entirely sympathize with him, but you still can see where he's coming from in a way. And especially in the second half, when we get a bit of a more, like, like, he's he's starting to become this different person without become without it turning cliche. Um, and it's, it's tricky because the thing with the film is that we have, like, you know, Christina Ricci's character, Layla, who he kidnaps at first, and, and they have a very uh, strange relationship where he is being very cruel to her, being very, you know, being very mean. But there's still, like... She like the way that I see the film. I, I've heard people kind of call us like like. There's there's a great video by the way out there that I'm gonna link that I'm gonna put a clip in where some critics are talking about like oh this film is like it's just a just a male um kind of ego thing where it's like oh this 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 girl is for this guy and all that. But I, I really don't see it. I'm not an actor turned filmmaker. I'm not Tim Robbins or Sean Penn. I haven't used the mainstream success that I've had as a movie star, which is none, uh, to finance a film based on my own name as an actor turned director. I was very successful in the 80s as an artist. So to be uh, classified, because you didn't do your research and really read about where I was coming from, as an actor, Hollywood actor turned filmmaker, is an irresponsible comment. And I sense a little bit of your own personal hang-ups as a woman that made, it, made you incapable of transcending them and enjoying the love story, which is... Uh, quite evolved and quite modern. You, I don't know what to say because your comments were so convoluted I wasn't quite sure what you meant. Uh, I guess you just didn't like the film because, because maybe you're a little bored with cinema or something like that. I don't know. The, but the biggest problem I have with critics right now is that there are a few filmmakers that I'm, I'm attributed to over and over like David Lynch or John Cassavetes. Two of two filmmakers I don't really like very much and I, I certainly wasn't influenced by. But because journalists like to package things and categorize things, they need to use these names. But it's very lazy. I mean, you know, cinema existed a long time before David Lynch and there were many films that had unusual families and unusual characters. And in what's called independent cinema, which I don't believe in because there's good movies and bad movies, um, uh, people find it easy to categorize uh, other artists with figureheads of supposed genres. If a critic has an extremely clever point of view as to why my, my art or my films or my performance are insignificant or don't have quite the great impact that I had hoped them to have, I can learn from that. I can, I can be objective. I can be objective. When Thelma Adams from the New York Post calls me a Calvin Klein underwear model because I did a CKB perfume <laughs> commercial. 
uh, Calvin Klein CKB's underwear model's directorial debut, then I think it's the low road, and that's why I called her up personally on the phone. And they personalizing it then, do you feel? It's just, it's sophomoric. It's, it's, uh, this character, you know, Layla, kind of sees this guy, Billy, as, as really pathetic. I mean, it's Billy who wants to be this hardened criminal, but he, I mean, his whole big conflict in the first part of the film is that he needs to find somewhere to pee and how he's getting so pissed off because of it. In a very, you know, in, in a comedic uh, sequence, which is another thing that about this film is that on the second viewing, that I found this film uh, a lot funnier this time around, a lot of intentionally co uh, comedic, you know, comical stuff. This whole ordeal is that he needs to find somewhere to pee and then when he finally does the problem that he gets into in his reaction about a guy looking at his dick I mean it's it's just so good and there's great things where he's like you know where Layla first where, where she first um, uh, yeah, hears him like you know saying some homophobic slurs and she's like hey you know watch your language and he freaks out on her and then a second later he's like hey you got a quarter for the for the phone and just that back and forth of just like he's I mean his character is, is funny without trying to be he's like this pathetic guy who wants to be this hardened criminal and Layla kind of sees it out in him like there's, a, like there's a whole point early on where he, he still has to pee and he's like and she has she he forces her to drive him around um and he's like i'm gonna go behind that tree far away now don't leave you stare right here and it's it's funny because like yeah anybody else would just leave at that point he's like i'm gonna turn my back but just don't leave like i don't like the way that i watch this film i don't think that layla even sees him as a threat at all it's kind of like i mean she's kind of oblivious to a lot of stuff but she doesn't see him as like this this guy he's, he's just a loser you know and that's all he is like he tries to like make these like deals and stuff and this whole deal went bad and he's and he calls up there's like a whole great scene where he calls up uh, kevin Corrigan in the film, he calls him Goon, and he's like, "Hey, don't call me Goon," you know. And it's it's great. And he, there's like just some of the dialogue that he has is so funny. Like the like whole scene where he is in the photo booth, where uh, with which is the poster for the film, where he's with Christina Ricci, and um, and some of the dialogue that he says to her is like, "We're," he's like, "We're, we're, you know, our our love spans time, you know. We're we're two people who don't talk shit." And he's just cause like, she's like making faces. He's like, "What are you doing?" I, he's like, it, "It's so ridiculous." But it's, it, his the way he portrays that character is so interesting. And, and and you never feel bad for him, but you just kind of see what kind of guy he is. He can't get, you know, he he wants to be the he wants to be this sort of this badass. He can't get close to a woman, and and he is just so totally oblivious to everybody around him. And there's, there's some great stuff with his parents, play, played by Ben Cazera and um, Angelica Houston, and that whole sequence is great. And and just. He, the guy's just a loser, and then one of my favorite sequences in the film is when he's at a diner and he sees two people who are, um, who are, uh, 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 you know, one of the one of his classmates, and she's basically calling off being a loser and stuff, and how pathetic that he feels. And I think a big part of it is the way that Vincent Gallo plays that character, where he he I can't explain it. I think Vincent Gallo is such a unique one of a kind of person, and I know he's a controversial guy. And I know the production on this film is really tricky, and obviously I don't agree with some of the you know some of the stuff they did, and some of the insults he was saying, and you know I understand why people would probably hate him, but. Um, I don't know. I think he's just an extremely charismatic lead, and it's, and it's a shame we never got more movies out of him. I know he's a very, you know, he he he, you know, he does stuff and doesn't release it, or he only wants certain people to see it in, in a way to like spite people. I don't know. Like I, I mean, I'm in the minority maybe, but I think the Brown Bunny is really solid too, and that's a film that I know people totally hate, and I get it. I get people hate it, but to me, I think there's a lot more going on than just surface level kind of uh, thing that pe people maybe see it as, you know. And I'm really happy that you know, yeah, recently I, I you know saw the trailer for the for the new film that he's starring in. Um, Shut it, I think it's called. And I'm like, hey, it looks, it looks cool. I'm, it's great to see him back. And I just think that Vincent Gallo is just a, a really um, interesting character actor. Um, or actor, I should say. He's playing mostly more of himself. But, uh, yeah, this film, and especially where it goes to in the end, is so... I just love how... 
I don't want to say romantic because it's not even the way it is. But there's a great, great one of my favorite scenes in the film is when uh, he's going to leave Christina Ricci to go do what he has to do, and she's saying like, and there's a great emotional, quiet scene where she's like, you know, I, I have a feeling you're not going to come back, and and he, you can see kind of the hesitation in his character, just like, do I go and do this thing that's gonna that I know is going to end badly, or do I stay here and you know what this girl has been with this whole time. And it, that great kind of uh, back and forth, that, that mental kind of feeling that he has and where that goes to. And especially the final sequence in this film, this is the final sequence where he's in, like, he's in like a, like a coffee shop. And the way that he interacts with the characters, the way they all play that, I think is so great where you just, I don't want to give anything away, but you just totally fee- have that same feeling that he does. I've just this, this, I, that, that scene in particular, I can't really say much about because it, it might be a spoiler. I don't know, but it is the end of the film. But yeah, like like I said, this film just it makes a totally subjective thing. I know people probably would think like, oh, what? This film better than Saving Private Ryan? Like, no, it's not better than Saving Private Ryan. I just like this more than Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan is, in my opinion, undeniably the best film of 1998. But this is my favorite film of 1998. And on the second viewing, it just made me love it even more. This is one of my favorite films, period. And I just really hope that Vincent Gallo ends up doing more, more stuff in the future. I really hope he comes back and decides to release that movie that he never released, uh, the one from 2010. I think he did. I can't remember what it was, but yeah, I just I love this film. This is one of my all-time favorite films. Um, the character writing in this is so strong. I know he didn't write the film. This was um, Allison Bagnall who uh, uh, wrote it, but he this really this is his film, and he you know he did start behind it. But yeah, no, this is. Um, just a masterpiece, I think, and one of the funniest and uh, 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 interesting performances from a character in a film like this. So, um, that's my number one favorite film in 1998, Buffalo 66 with Vincent Gallo. So, next, that was 1998. Um, I'm going to go through my list really quickly. I watched 56 films, and I'm going to just, you know, go from the bottom to the top. I'm not going to talk about all of them. I'm just going to run through them, and uh, some films are going to be like, what? This one didn't make it. This one didn't make it. Like I said, it's all favorites, so you're probably going to be like, oh, Big Lebowski, Rushmore, they weren't in your top ten. I like both those films, but, you know, I like other films first, so... Um, going to go from 56 to number one. going to run run through them kind of briefly. So, uh, and some of these you might be like, what, that's that low? But, you know, like I said, it's just personal preference. So, uh, my least favorite film of 1998, uh, a film I really, really didn't like. And number 56 is What Dreams May Come. Really didn't like the film. From there, 55, Shakespeare in Love. 54, Flowers of Shanghai. That's the one that uh, I, w- I might... You know, people really like that film, and I'm I just had trouble connecting with the characters and the story on that. But I, I get why. I, I respect that film a lot, but I don't think it's it's not it wasn't it wasn't for me. Live it at that. Fifty three, a simple plan. Fifty two, soldier. Fifty one, love is a devil. Fifty, permanent midnight. Forty nine, a uh, velvet goldmine. Forty eight, the red violin. Forty seven, celebrity. Forty six, the acid house. Forty five, fallen. Forty four, you've got mail. Forty three, out of sight. Forty two, waking Ned. 41, The Wedding Singer, 40, Babyface, uh, 39, Samurai Fiction, 38, Twilight, 37, Snake Eyes, 36, uh, The Faculty, 35, The Quiet Family, 34, Rushmore, 33, uh, Fucking Them All, uh, 32, Hillary and Jackie, 31, Hard Rain, and 30, uh, Small Soldiers. Uh, 29, The Idiots, 28, He Got Game, 27, The Apple, the Iranian film, 26, uh, The Opposite of Sex, 25, Ronin, 24, Little Detour Needs to Fly, 23, Clay Pigeons, 22, The Interview, 21, Bullworth, and 20, Basketball Dude, (laughs) Uh, 19, Rush Hour, 18, uh, Last Days of Disco, 17, Divorce Iranian Style, 16, Pleasantville, 15, The Big Lowski, 14, The Thin Red Line, 13, Rounders, 12, American History X, and just barely missing it, a film I do love a lot, number 11, The Celebration. So my top 10 again, 
Number 10, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Number 9, The General. Number 8, Dirty Work. Number 7, Pie. Number 6, The Dinner Game. Number 5, Central Station. Number 4, Croupier. Number 3, The Truman Show. Number 2, Stephen Private Ryan. And number 1, Buffalo 66. So I appreciate you guys listening to all of this. So we're now going to randomize into what the next year will be. So we have my list here from 1930 to 2020. So can I get a drum roll, please? So the next year we'll be doing a top 10 of will be 1958. All right. So come back in March or maybe halfway through March and we're going to do our top 10, my top 10 favorite films of 1958. So I appreciate you guys listening to this far. Um, I have plenty more ideas for videos, but I just want to do this as kind of like a fun little thing. Um, like I said, I'm not like an expert. I'm not like, you know, some film like expert or anything like that. I just am a fan. I like to watch movies. So I figured hopefully I'd maybe turn you guys on to some films you haven't seen yet. Or maybe you're like, you know, what? I've heard of that, but I haven't seen it yet. Or maybe you're like, Daniel, this is totally stupid. Here's where you're wrong and you're an idiot and that's okay you know it's all good so um i appreciate you guys listening to all this and i hope to do more videos in the future so thanks for listening and see you in a couple months for my top 10 of 1958 all the best and cut perfect printed let's move on